Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Karen Akinsanya. Karen is the chief biomedical scientist at Schrodinger. The New York-based company is a leader in computational chemistry for drug discovery. The company is privately held and not a household name. But there are some household names who know it well. Schrodinger counts Bill Gates and David E. Shaw, the hedge fund billionaire, among its major shareholders. Nimbus Therapeutics and Morphic Therapeutic are a couple of young companies that have made strides with its computer modeling to discover new drugs. Karen came to Schrodinger in 2018 from Big Pharma, Merck to be specific. She received her PhD in Endocrine Physiology at Imperial College London. She worked her way from the lab bench through many different aspects of the pharmaceutical business. As she puts it, she likes challenges. Karen is focused now on a big one. What Schrodinger can enable in terms of how can it put a dent in the industry's most stubborn problem, the lack of drug R&D productivity. Karen, as you'll hear, is a native of the UK, an immigrant, a mom, and someone who devotes considerable time and energy to youth science and education. She recognizes the importance of role models who can encourage young people to go down paths they might not have even known existed. I wish I had asked her more about that work, but it was good to at least hear her philosophy on why she carves out time for it. It comes up toward the end of the conversation. Now, before we dive in, a word from our sponsor. Today's sponsor is PPD Biotech. As your drug development advances, it's critical to select the right CRO partner for your innovative therapy. With a full set of development services and global reach, PPD Biotech offers teams that are dedicated to biotech and small pharma. PPD Biotech knows that every milestone, every project update, every change in direction is important. Committed to close alignment and cultural fit, PPD Biotech works as an extension of your team every step of the way to find innovative solutions that get your treatments to the clinic faster. To learn more about PPD Biotech or to schedule a meeting with its executives at the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference, visit www.ppdbiotech.com slash longrun. I'll say it again. You can go to that custom URL, ppdbiotech.com slash long run. And if you enjoy listening to these in-depth interviews, you'll love reading Timmerman Report. You can subscribe to Timmerman Report for $149 a year per person. Over the course of a year, that's quite a bargain if I don't say so myself. Group subscriptions, which include an internal sharing license across your company, are available for a 10% discount. For details, ask me at luke at timmermanreport.com. Okay, with me today for the Long Run Podcast is Karen Akinsanya, Chief Biomedical Scientist at Schrodinger. Welcome, Karen. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Luke. Glad to be here. So I think this is a great uh, scene to describe for our listeners. Uh, Here I am sitting in midtown Manhattan in a company that I think is inspired by an Austrian physicist uh, with uh, a female chief scientific officer uh, telling me about computational techniques applied to discovery of new drugs. This is pretty cool. Like, you know, it's like we live in an amazing place. We have a great country. And I just think you, there's so much going on here that's exciting. And I'm really pleased that you can you can join me and enlighten me on, on so many things that are going on in, in your life and at this company. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. It's uh, not necessarily what I had planned at the beginning of my career, but I think it's the perfect place to be right now. So, Karen, um, can you just take me from the be- start, the beginning? Um, where were you born and raised? Sure. Um, I was born and raised in the UK, um, southern England. Uh, I grew up in Surrey and uh, lived all my life there, actually. I did my undergrad and PhD there, got my first job there, 
And then 18 years ago, I ended up coming to the U.S. So most of my um, formative years were in the U.K. And what did your mom and dad do for a living? So um, both my parents were um, in the teaching professions. Um, my father was an academic scientist, a human biologist, I think they used to call them when I was growing up, but actually he was studied microbiology and human biology at university. He went to King's College in, in London. Um, my mother was a nurse and um, early on in her career, award-winning nurse actually, and then ended up uh, going into teaching as well. So she was a lecturer in nursing in the UK at the university as well. So growing up, it was very much a sort of academic household. My dad wrote books, my mum wrote articles. It was, you know, just very much normal in our household. Did you have siblings? Yes, I have three brothers. I have a twin brother and two older brothers. Oh, okay. Uh, and what kinds of things did were they interested in when you were growing up in this academic household? Um, so I think writing was a common theme throughout. You were either writing science or you were writing on the other side of our household, which was the law. So my twin brother and my older brother, they're both barristers at law in London. And my um, uh, my middle brother is actually a TV producer involved in uh, you know writing and producing television programs. So um, a little bit different. I followed the science, they followed uh, the law and more sort of literary subjects. Mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. Either way, it sounds like there was an emphasis on education. That very this much was... so, very much so. Uh, my dad was actually prolific. He wrote his first book when he was 15. And uh, <laughs> so I, I guess um, learning and education was something they were both very keen on. My parents both came to the UK when they were in their very early 20s, um, in the 60s both to pursue their education. So, yeah, it was very much a recurring theme in our house, um, improving your uh, knowledge set through whatever means that, you know, that took. Where were they from? So my father was from Nigeria. Um, he was born in uh, around Lagos, Nigeria. And my mother's from Trinidad and Tobago. Uh-huh. And was there, what brought them to the UK in the 60s? Studying. So they both applied from where they were and got in. I believe they both got into the U.S. and the U.K. to different um, institutions to study. And they both decided on the U.K. and met actually in the west of England in a place called Bristol. Okay. So you're growing up. Uh, what, what years are you, uh, are would you consider your formative years for... Trying not, I'm trying not to date you. I know it's kind of rude, Karen, but, uh, you know, when, when did, were you sort of coming of age and, and becoming interested in science? Um, so I can, I can say that the early 70s, uh, early 70s, late 70s, um, I guess I was a, a teen in uh, sort of 1980. Margaret Thatcher was prime minister. Yeah. She was a chemist. And oh, I didn't she know was that. this person who stayed up till three o'clock in the morning, just like everyone in our household, <laughs> um, you know, reading and doing all this uh, stuff that she did. And I was so inspired by her. I thought, wow, she's a chemist and she's the prime minister. That's really cool. But then, of course, you know, in our household, um, I think in my 12th year, when it was summer vacation, I was helping my dad illustrate a book about anatomy and microbiology. Um, so it was, science was never very far away. Um, I used to go on his, uh, lecture tours. He was a visiting professor all over the world. So I would go with him and, um, yeah, actually my first trip to the U S was when I was a teen. He was, um, at Brown, I think in, uh, somewhere near here. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so as a teen, it was just very natural for me to be interested in science. And then at school, it was my favorite topic. He probably loved having you come along and show an interest. Yeah, I used to help him with his overheads, right? Remember overhead machines? Slide projectors <laughs> yes. before PowerPoint. Uh, yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, so you, um, how did you, how did you decide to specialize in in biology specifically? Um, so I, I suppose uh, it's probably because I loved doing experiments. So I think when I was at school, I did biology, chemistry, physics, just like everyone else. But I there was something about biology that just captured my imagination. Um, and I have to be honest with you, when my um, father became ill, actually, it was where I really thought, well, gosh, you can use science to help 
try and understand disease and um, maybe I can actually make a, an attempt at helping in some way. Um, so while other disciplines and clearly physics is very um, prominent in the building that we're in right now, for me, biology was the way, um, and, and medicine actually, because I considered medical school for a very long time, um, those were ways in which I felt I could really help um, with regard to, you know, curing and uh, helping with disease. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And what was the problem? I know you got into endocrinology. I did. Um, so I did my undergraduate in biochemistry, an undergraduate degree in biochemistry. I ended up working in a, a lab that um, was studying how uh, peptides would signal in the brains of insects, actually. <laughs> and um, in that lab, I ended up spending a ton of time at the bench, um, literally extracting uh, peptides from fly brains. And I really loved it. Not just did I love the the, the process of doing research in the lab. For me, it was also the hunt for information about what was known before and what questions were left unanswered. And for me, that meant a, a very obvious step into um, academic research and doing a PhD. So almost immediately, I applied for several different PhD programs. Actually, I think some in the US as well. I ended up joining um, the Ross Postgraduate Medical School. I joined um, Professor, now Sir Steve Bloom's PhD lab. Um, and that was a lab focused on endocrine physiology. Um, people may know him as being the sort of uh, most cited scientist, youngest dean of School of Medicine in the UK at the time, um, with around 40 of us, 40 PhD students. Well, that's a big lab. It was very big. Okay, and this was Imperial College London, Imperial right? Imperial College. So Royal Postgraduate Medical School is part of Imperial College. And um, we had literally clinical rounds, grand rounds going on where we were sort of talking about patients, but we were also doing very fundamental research. So it was a very translational science environment. Um, and for me, endocrinology was a lot of fun. It made a lot of sense. Um, so yes, I ended up doing a PhD in my first postdoc in this endocrine physiology pharmacology lab. Your dad's probably thinking, great, she's going to be an academic like me. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he thought it was great. And um, yeah, he'd done his PhD at King's. I was uh, down the street, literally, uh, um, at Imperial. Uh, when I wrapped up my PhD, I was still convinced I was going to be an academic. I did my first postdoc in the same lab. Um, Steve was a fantastic mentor and actually gave me my own uh, team to run when I was still um, writing up my thesis. And um, uh, it, it became, um, you know, just very exciting place to be. There were lots of nature papers being published. A lot was going on. But I became um, very focused on the fact I didn't have a, a, a particular tool in my toolbox, which was molecular biology. And at the time, there were lots of papers being published about you know, um, cloning genes and doing things differently to the way we were doing them at the time, at least. Um, and so I wanted to go off and learn that. So I actually left the RPMS and went to the Ludwig Institute of Cancer Research, where um, it was almost a complete right turn. Muscular dystrophy, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, um, trying to clone and deorphanize a tyrosine kinase receptor ligand. And it was during the course of that work that Georgianakopoulos' group at Regeneron had um, essentially in one paper <laughs> uh, published everything I was trying to do in my postdoc. And until that point, although I knew there were pharmaceutical companies and biotechs, early, early on there were biotechs, I hadn't really appreciated the quality of work that went on in biotech and pharma. And so that sort of opened my eyes. Here was this group at a company called Regeneron in, in the US who'd published this gorgeous paper. And um, I started to think then about going into uh, industry because I realized at the time, gosh, if they can do this type of work, you know, maybe there's a, a sort of meeting of minds there. You can do great research and you can also discover medicines that actually reach patients. So did... Um, what? This was a time when a lot of large molecule people, so to speak, biochemists, were thinking about nucleic acids. Mm -hmm. the, the data was becoming more available, like Correct. we're starting to sequence, yes. uh, that sort of thing. 
Um, how did you actually make the move to industry? That was fairing pharmaceuticals, right? It was. It was. So um, after that paper was published and I started to think, okay, well, I'm applying for Wellcome Trust grants to run my own lab. Um, maybe I should think about applying for some jobs in pharma. So here comes this job where they're looking for someone with a very specific set of expertise, endocrine physiology understanding of molecular biology sufficient to clone receptors and create assays for drug discovery. And uh, I thought, well, I think I can do that now. I've <laughs> got the endocrine background. I have um, an understanding now of molecular biology and how to clone out targets. And so I went for the interview and um, met the people at Faring Pharmaceuticals, which was a small institute in Southampton, south of London. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was so interesting to me that they were designing molecules at the time, a huge medicinal chemistry group there, designing molecules, working hand in hand with biologists. And so I decided to join them. It was uh, <laughs> a sort of decision to leave academia at that moment and join um, a private pharmaceutical company in the UK. Did you face any sort of skepticism or even ostracism from colleagues? Oh, yes. Yes, so my 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 boss at um, the Ludwig, who um, at the time you know was just very concerned. You're leaving. You're going over to the dark side. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know this is industry after all. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and my father as well. He was very surprised. You know he thought I was going to be a lifelong academic, and he's like, "Are you sure you want to do this?" Um, yes. Yeah, so people were surprised, um, and. Um, it's funny because my my boss now works for G my boss at the Ludwig now works for GSK. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yes, uh, at the time it seemed odd, but I think um, in in retrospect, I think a lot of us have ended up moving into pharma. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you over time got into a really interesting problem. We can say with retrospect, the DPP four inhibitors. Yes. Is, did, did you get latched onto this early on? Actually, no. So um, to your point about biochemistry and the sort of growing wave of molecular biology and nucleic acid research, when I landed at Faring Pharmaceuticals, um, it was really a lot of fun. There was, at the time, combinatorial chemistry. I don't know if you remember the wave of combinatorial chemistry. Um, that, was that was being built there. We were building assays to, to sort of match, to be able to run the, the, these large libraries of compounds. Um, the, the way that targets were selected was through academic relationships mostly. And I became somewhat concerned that, gosh, you know, maybe there's another way to identify targets. They had a program um, on DP4. And I thought, what if we could explore the human genome to find targets that looked just like DP4? Because if we could do that, we have all these compounds, we could figure out how they interact with all these DP4-related proteins, which I imagine must exist, because Mother Nature is thrifty. She's got to have used these cassettes, perhaps reused them across the genome. So it was a sort of exploratory project. And um, we began a collaboration, actually, with uh, Stanford to try and identify whether there were other family members of the DP4 family, and in, to our surprise, there were several. Um, and so we uncovered this family of DP4-related proteins and uh, cloned them, tried to characterize them. And it was around that time, actually, that I thought, okay, this works. We need to use the Human Genome Project to explore new targets. So I wrote this white paper to the head of R&D at Faring, and um, suggested that we needed to get closer to the work that was going on with regard to the Human Genome Project. And he thought it was a great idea um, and sent me immediately over to the San Diego site in California. And so that's how I actually ended up in the US. Um, I came to the US uh, to run a new target discovery group and um, to pursue actually uh, small molecule inhibitor programs alongside the peptide work, which Faring is famous for. So we had both small molecules and peptide uh, projects going on. What year was this you moved to the uh, US? 2000, turn of the millennium. Okay. So the fireworks went off <laughs> and uh, I, I took the plane literally a few days later and landed in San Diego. So at this time, DPP4 
I mean, this was already well recognized as a very promising target for treatment of diabetes. So in 2000, that's right, there were beautiful papers published by Holst and others, actually connection back to the neuroendocrine world, because obviously GLP-1 and many other neuroendocrine peptides were um, cleaved by uh, DPP-4. And so, yes, the pharmaceutical companies um, were all pursuing, I think, well, not all, but many were pursuing DP4 inhibitors. And um, it was at that time that we were characterizing these DPP4-related enzymes. Um, And you probably know the story that uh, through various different routes, uh, different companies came across the fact that the early DP4 inhibitors lacked selectivity for some of these DP4-related enzymes. And the lack of selectivity actually led to uh, the poor profiles of some of those early compounds. Um, And uh, I think ultimately the successful compounds were the ones that were very selective. And obviously Merck had one of the very first examples of that. Genuvio. Cytogliptin? Cytogliptin, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, which they used directed evolution techniques, uh, right, to, to hone in on their lead candidate. Correct. So, there was, well, others will describe this well. I wasn't at Merck at the time, but yes, they, they had a very good understanding of selectivity that allowed them to come up with ultimately the first in class, even though there were many others in the field um, who were ahead of them. So it sounds like you had an interesting stint there at Faring. Was it all in San Diego? So South, Southampton, the UK, then San Diego. That's right. So uh-huh. I spent about 10 or 11 years there. And how did you end up moving to Merck? So one of the things that happened at Ferring was that you took your programs up to development candidate. And then at development candidate, the compounds would go back to Denmark. That's where clinical development was. And I was really interested in understanding what is it that happens to your development candidate? Sometimes you'd hear a couple of years later that that development candidate had some flaw of some kind and therefore it hadn't worked so well in man. And I became intrigued by that. And actually, um, sort of a hallmark of my career, just like not having the molecular biology and wanting to go off and sort of learn that piece, I said, you know what, I really want to learn clinical pharmacology. I really want to understand what happens to these molecules once they get into man. Um, So I did a clinical pharmacology uh, uh, training at Tufts and met actually several of the clinical pharmacology faculty at Merck and uh, got into a lot of discussion with them during that course. Um, I went back to San Diego and got a phone call from Dan Bloomfield, who led a large team at Merck, um, inviting me to come out and visit. And um, fortunately for me, I, I ended up joining that group. Um, so I joined Merck uh, clinical pharmacology team and it was just perfect because I was so interested in taking molecules from those, you know, multi-year preclinical programs into man and uh, landed at, at, at a fabulous place like Merck to it, learn how to do that and actually to, to run those studies. It probably didn't hurt that you were interested in a target class that they were interested in too. Very funny because <laughs> uh, I think I was there for my interview and... Um, we had recently published a paper, and uh, someone recognized my ma- my name from the paper, I think it was, and before long, the whole DP4 project team had said, oh, can we come to the talk? <laughs> so it was actually funny on my interview day, that did become a bit of a theme for the, for the afternoon. So was this at Merck in San Diego? Because they had an operation there for a while, or did you move to the East Coast? I moved to the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Yes, I did. I moved back to the East Coast. Um, my husband had actually come out to... Um, San Diego to join me um, and then he's from the East Coast he's actually from New York and uh, we were then at that point very far away also from both of our families so it seemed natural to come back uh, closer to to the East Coast that was great yeah okay so you go to work on clinical pharmacology at Merck what was your kind of first order of business Um, my first order of business was um, a program in asthma which I'd never worked in before. <laughs> so, uh, a little my, scary. <laughs> it was very scary. In fact, my first year at uh, Merck in clinical pharmacology was immensely scary, but probably that some of the best learning of my life. Um, so I was um, I was working with uh, a, a senior clinical pharmacologist there who was fantastic, very supportive. In fact, throughout my career at Merck, I had just awesome mentors. 
and um, I I got. I'm to sorry. Write this this was about 2005. Is 2005, that right? exactly. Okay. Around okay. 2005. Um, so yes, I I had to work with him to develop um, protocols for understanding uh, the first in human. Uh, profile of, of an inhibitor for asthma. And interestingly, I ended up staying on that program for many years. So um, it went through phase one safely. Uh, I got to do the, uh, you know, the usual feed and bleed, single ascending, multiple ascending, got through those and we went into phase two study. I joined the product development team. It was a fantastic time. We actually got to take that program all the way to phase two B. We were preparing for a um, global filing, so we were doing studies in Japan, in Europe. Um, I learned all about how to create um, studies for the label, final market image for the final dose form. It was interactions with the FDA. Um, it was a really fantastic learning opportunity. So um, that was my first program, but uh, I actually worked on schizophrenia, migraine, Lots of different uh, projects during my time at Clin Farm. What what happened in phase two B there? So, unfortunately, as is uh, typical of our industry, uh, we got very nice data. In fact, a lot of the interest I have in PKPD came from that program. We got gorgeous PK, gorgeous PD. Unfortunately, it just wasn't efficacious enough. So we were testing it against a standard of care agent, and it worked. It just didn't work well enough. Uh, to unseat the standard of care. So we actually ended up closing the program. That's uh, a frequent occurrence and hard after years of work. I mean, this is your your baby. Indeed, indeed, yes. Um, that said, I uh, got to work on a lot of different projects. And one of the um, things we were emphasizing at the time, and I think Merck was somewhat of a pioneer in operationalizing this space called experimental medicine, and the early adoption of biomarkers was, you know, how do we learn some of these lessons earlier? And while you can't do that for every program, because ultimately you obviously need to get into efficacy studies and the biomarkers don't always tell you about efficacy in the long run, we did do some really interesting work to develop biomarkers and I learned a, a ton again through that. Today's sponsor is PPD Biotech. As your drug development advances, it's crucial to select the right CRO partner for your innovative therapy. With a full set of development services and global reach, PPD Biotech offers teams that are dedicated to biotech and small pharma. PPD Biotech knows that every milestone, every project update, every change in direction is important. Committed to close alignment and cultural fit, PPD Biotech works as an extension of your team every step of the way to find innovative solutions that get your treatments to the clinic faster. To learn more about PPD Biotech or to schedule a meeting with its executives at the upcoming J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference, visit www.ppdbiotech.com slash long run. I'll say that again. To learn more about PPD Biotech or to schedule a meeting at the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference, visit www.ppdbiotech.com slash long run. Please do check out that link because if you go there to schedule a meeting, you will not only check out the services of a leading CRO, but you will help prove the value of the long run podcast to this sponsor and future sponsors. So you start in clinical pharmacology, you move toward experimental medicines. By this time, you're fleshing out a pretty interesting set of skills here, starting with large molecule biochemistry and then learning more about nucleic acid, molecular biology. Yes. Now you're getting the drug development piece with pharmacology and all that phase one, single ascending dose, all that PKPD stuff you're talking about, which you knew nothing about, I'm sure, at the, you know, in academia. Yes. <laughs> um, and uh, this, is, this kind of puts you on the executive track. Um, right or or no? Well, not, not yet. Not necessarily. Not at that time. I will say though, um, I was very fortunate, and it was a sort of interesting time at Merck. So I was very fortunate to work with um, some wonderful mentors. As I said, um, I was in clinical pharmacology around the same time as uh, people that I think pe very recognizable names: uh, Andy Plump, who's now head of R and D at Takeda. 
Um, he was he was in Clint Farm and transitioned out before I did, um, and uh, became a fantastic mentor of mine. Uh, Kathleen Metters, um, who I, I'm sure you've heard of, was running uh, uh, the Discovery Labs at the time. Uh, Dan Bloomfield, all of these folks were at Merck, and um, they sort of took me under their wing and said, you know, I have a certain set of skills that are somewhat unique at this point, and um, they saw me having um, a sort of a potential to go into a, d a number of different roles. Um, and I was uh, lucky enough to be nominated to something called the Emerging Leader Program at Merck, where um, the CEO, actually, Ken Frazier, wanted to take um, around 300 people, I think it was at the time, um, who were still relatively junior, actually, um, but had different types of experiences, but also um, the potential to drive change throughout the organization from where they were in the organization. And as such, I actually got to do a, a number of different really interesting roles. So when externalization was happening, um, I was uh, supported by Peter Kim at the time, who was the head of R&D, to actually take on a role there with Kathleen and Andy in the cardiovascular franchise to start testing the waters of what it would be like to run programs in collaboration with the academic network outside of Merck, but also at some level with the emerging external um, vehicle that really now drives a lot of drug discovery in the CRO world. So that was one role that I had um, as a sort of stretch assignment. And that led to me then coming back as we integrated that external thinking into how we ran a lot of our programs. Um, I got to take on a cardiovascular therapeutic area role by running a lab of, of 30 PhDs trying to find new mechanisms all the way from target ID all the way to supporting late stage uh, projects. This is really interesting on a number of levels. I mean, th among the 300 people kind of identified as emerging leaders, you actually get to meet the CEO. That rarely happens or <laughs> companies of size of like a Merck. How did you actually like have a big retreat with all of these other people where Ken would get up and talk and, you know, have dinner with a number of these people? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was very inspiring. Um, yeah, I actually remember a moment where, again, the, the, the notion that, that, that some of the projects we had to take on, it wasn't just a sort of a jaunt. We had to take on projects within the company that we thought were important and that could lead to change. And um, I remember um, saying to Ken, putting my hand up where, when he'd finished speaking and saying, you know, um, I think it's going to be difficult to perhaps drive change in this particular project and I remember him coming up to me and saying, you cannot take no for an answer. Patients are waiting for us. You have to do this. I'm supporting you. And it was this very inspirational moment. He was, um, he was actually after that, um, having interacted with him, he became also a, a, a mentor for me, actually, in the company. That's really great to hear. I mean, that's what a boss, you know should do. R remove obstacles, uh, support the people trying to advance change. Uh, a company like Merck, I mean, I, I think a lot of people, at least on the outside, perceive as, you know, it's got all these tremendous resources, great people, uh, but at, maybe in these years was not the most externally focused of companies. Uh, that's, that's one side effect of having so many great people. You tend to maybe have a little bit of not invented here syndrome that right. you need to contend with. <laughs> right, right. And actually, so, so the project that I took on um, was about creating a vehicle for us to not just interact with external scientists, but actually to fund, have, have almost a grassroots effort for scientists to identify science they were interested in outside and be able to partner with those scientists. It was called MINT, Merck Initiative for New Targets. So that was one of my projects, actually, in the Emerging Leader um, effort. And um, I think we did like 40 or so collaborations, some of which... Um, led to new insights. So yes, um, I think uh, obviously amazing science at Merck. Just, uh, I think I've heard people describe it as the, as the Harvard of Pharma. I don't know <laughs> whether people endorse that view, but certainly I learned a ton there about how to develop drugs. It was a really great place, but also uh, was involved in just very, very many exciting collaborations, including with the Broad. So, so Andy and I worked very closely with the Broad on 
running um, some of the first exome arrays. So that's not something you would have done internally at Merck um, alone. So we were able to forge excellent collaborations with St. Catherison and his team there and really just learn an enormous amount of card- about cardiovascular genetics that way. Was this in the early days when they were compiling all those exomes? I mean, they've got something like 60,000 exomes or probably exactly. a lot more than that now. I, I, My memory may serve me wrongly, but I think it was the very first exome array that was run um, by, by Sake's group. Huh. Yeah. So now things change at Merck. Peter Kim leaves, Roger Perlmutter comes in, um, some therapeutic areas, things get reorganized. Yes. A lot, a lot of people leave. Well, how did, what, what happened for you in, those, in that transition? So actually around that time, we'd been uh, doing something that I really enjoy doing, which is looking at the portfolio of projects. So I was running a sort of cardiometabolic, cardio um, diabetic dyslipidemia type of um, set of projects. And we'd been asking the question, okay, PCSK9 is is coming down the pike. What's next in, in lipid biology? And so we had actually already started sort of uh, pivot that group. And as you said, therapeutic area focus changed. And um, I had the opportunity to actually take on a whole new role. So at the time um, I was... Um, in a position to take on a role in business development and licensing. So one of the things that was missing from my emerging leader profile was the business of science. And that could have meant jumping over into marketing or somewhere else, but Roger was rebuilding business development and licensing within Merck Research Labs, and they were looking for someone who had um, a sort of an eclectic mix, I guess, of preclinical, clinical knowing how to look at assets from a number of different angles. And so I took on the headquarters role for due diligence and was running a headquarters team uh, in, in due diligence in business development and licensing. So that's how I began working with Roger and um, the new leadership team um, at, at Merck. Did you get involved in negotiating deals with these little companies? Yeah, so mm-hmm. that was a whole new piece. Um, so primarily my job was looking at the science uh, evaluating the, the the packages in collaboration with our internal scientists, but yes, once we found science we liked, um, I became part of these deal teams, and it was really exciting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you have these eleventh hour like nervous moments. Are we going to get this, or is somebody else going to outbid us? <laughs> yes, correct. Yes, there was some of that as well. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you end up staying there until pretty recently, twenty eighteen, right? Yes. That's right. Actually, 2017. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, we're here at Schrodinger. Um, you, how did you first become aware of Schrodinger and what it does? Yes. So um, within BDNL, um, one of the things we did was look at therapeutic opportunities. So things that would come in in the early stage, either in preclinical or early development. But the other piece that um, I was very much involved in was looking at um, enabling technologies. So Um, what are the technologies that we think can accelerate either our programs, our platforms, the way we think about doing drug discovery. And um, I became aware of Schrodinger through some of those efforts. Um, I haven't really thought since those days back at, you know, thinking about combinatorial chemistry, I hadn't thought a lot about this space um, in terms of, you know, optimizing uh, how we find compounds and how you interrogate chemical space. it was a project that we were working on um, at the time where I, I just got a little bit closer and realized that, gosh, computational chemistry, because I'd been part of the, the group of people who'd obviously read a lot of those computational chemistry articles many years back um, and hadn't really thought too much about it since. But I could see that actually computational chemistry that Schrodinger was doing was making actually a pretty interesting impact. And it sort of dawned on me, because I have this... Um, historical uh, desire to organize information. So when I was in BDNL, I created a sort of GPS system that allowed us to kind of say, okay, um, what are all the licensing opportunities in Germany or in California or in Boston? So this sort of um, uh, database I created. Um, And I, I was sort of thinking, gosh, what if you could create a database of projects that would be exquisitely amenable to the way Schrodinger does drug discovery. After, by then, 20-something years in pharma, 
One of the things I, I, I had come to realize, as I think we all have, is that um, the early space is, is a fascinating space. It's a sort of primordial soup, as Rich Chile used to call it, of um, early ideas with potential promise, but they're very risky. And it takes a, a significant amount of investment to actually get those projects going. And a lot of that is because to establish the assays, to do the high throughput screening, to get momentum going in those projects is actually quite hard. And so what occurred to me was, gosh, maybe using computational methods and the physics-based methods that Schrodinger uses, maybe we could actually turn that wheel a little bit faster in the early space, identify compounds with a little less um, expense and perhaps faster, which I now realize now that I'm here, um, once you have a very validated um, model, you can actually make enormous progress in uh, exploring chemical space. So at the time, I was thinking, gosh, wouldn't it be exciting to interrogate more therapeutic hypotheses in a more efficient and quicker manner with Schrodinger's platform? And um, I happened to be chatting with Rami, the CEO, and um, at the same time, I was thinking about this very different background I had of some business development, some clinical, some preclinical, and a sort of desire to see more ideas tested. And it just seemed like a perfect and natural fit because, as you know, that Schrodinger has an enormous network of partnerships and um, this focus on structurally enabled targets and the application of their physics-based methods. And I became intrigued because I'd worked at the level of the genome, and to some extent the proteome. Now I became obsessed about the pocketome, and can we define this pocketome and sort of systematically analyze that pocketome or that sort of map of proteins to understand how we could apply Schrodinger's technology to help develop new therapeutics. So that's that was kind of the wow, that would be an exciting project moment for me. So were you having this conversation after uh, the Nimbus Therapeutics kind of case study where Schrodinger's methods were able to demonstrate, okay, we, we can actually, you know, look at targets and take into account free energy perturbation and solubility and, and all a number of other factors here that yes. we haven't really been able to bring predictive power to. Correct. Yes. So I I believe the Nimbus deal uh, the the Nimbus deals had already occurred, and um, yes, I was aware of those. And actually, as I became intrigued by this broader idea, I obviously looked back and saw you could actually apply this on projects where um, industry had had a lot of problems. So if you don't have that unique structural insight that Schrodinger's suite brings you as to where either orthosteric sites are allosteric sites are, and I think the Nimbus example, the, probably the most famous one, is the ACC project where it was a non-conserved sequence in the ACC1 that allowed you to actually target this allosteric site in ways that traditional methods actually had not um, been able to do that led to this incredibly selective molecule uh, that then moved forward very, very quickly um, into... Um, partnership and then obviously into clinical trials. So that was the uh, exemplar for what might be possible on a much larger scale. For years before, people thought about ACC, but they'd try with the active site, mm -hmm. get exactly. nowhere. Yes. Um, and suddenly the computer is saying, there's another site you yeah, can target. Exactly. An allosteric site off to the side. Correct. It's so, I mean, you, this is a little bit of a... <laughs> A sort of analogy, but you can almost think about it as a Google map of proteins, right? If you're looking for your path through a city, if you don't really have a map of what that city looks like, you, you're probably going to reach your destination. It's just going to take you a lot longer. It's going to be a lot of trial and error to get across the city, especially this one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but by having that map and this structural map and um, insight into these pockets, not just the pockets that exist, but also where energy is. And as you mentioned, free energy perturbation allows you, once you've found those putative sites, to actually model um, and recapitulate what one would do in a classic binding assay um, to model how ligands interact with those binding sites. And so um, 
you know, having access to those maps and actually taking somewhat the blindfolds off that we have on in some cases when we're doing drug discovery just makes the whole thing much more efficient and um, I think allows you to explore hypotheses that haven't been explored before, which I guess would be the case with ACC. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, then along came Morphic Therapeutics, another test case going after integrin targets, which Correct. have been very hard for small molecules. Indeed. Uh, things, uh, there's, there's some proof here now that didn't exist uh, when you were getting started in the industry and people were talking about in silico drug discovery. Correct. It wasn't there yet. That's correct, yeah. So I think those are the two most famous examples right now of the application of Schrodinger's technology. Uh, there's obviously multiple programs at Nimbus, um, newsworthy of late, the, the Morphic projects. Um, but there are actually, I think, in the range of 20 or 30 projects, very similar to this, that are going on at the company. And... Um, Several of those projects are actually in the clinic. So ACC is in the clinic, but there are four other molecules that actually came through uh, the methods and, and went into uh, clinical development as development candidates. So I have to ask you a little bit about leaving Merck. I mean, you're on the executive track and, you know, Ken Frazier knows your name. I mean, that's <laughs> kind of nice. I mean, and, and Merck's a great company. Uh, you probably thought long and hard, I suppose, before leaving. Uh, what was the... The, the main draw? Um, I, I think for me, um, this idea that I like to have um, challenges that put me on that steep part of a learning curve. And having very been very fortunate at Merck to go through several different departments within MRL, um, the question is, what was next? Was the was the next step to go into one of those either therapeutic areas or functional areas and lead one of those? Or was it to stay on that steep part of a learning curve, if you like, and do something completely new that gave me a new skill in terms of how to develop drugs? And um, I have to say the choice was somewhat simple because that's been the MO of my career, which is if I don't have um, something more to learn, um, I typically take the opportunity to learn more about how to change the approach that allows things to move faster or to do things differently. So the clinical pharmacology move for me was an extremely easy decision to make when I left Bering because I just didn't have that piece. And I knew by understanding that it would make me a better drug discoverer. But you, see, you also like being in the deep end of the pool. Well, it sounds like, like going back to your asthma example, like I know nothing about asthma, but <laughs> I'm going to learn as quickly as I can. Yes. And actually, all the way back to my undergraduate days, my um, supervisor at the time, Dr. Thorpe, used to laugh at me because I had a duffel bag at the time. We didn't have computers as such, right? Um, all of, well, personal computers or iPhones where you could look up papers and read them on the bus home. I had a duffel bag full of every paper to do with this particular peptide. And so I, I read a lot. Um, I feel like I can get up to speed in an area very quickly. Of course, it doesn't make you a deep subject matter expert. Um, but being able to pull the critical pieces of information out of a extensive literature review, which I will often dedicate myself to, um, when I move into a new area, um, I found that I've been able to do that time and time again. And actually, the due diligence job was exactly that. I mean, in the morning, it was infectious diseases. In the afternoon, it was oncology. And you were making a recommendation with your team on behalf of MRL as to whether this was interesting. So, of course, you hadn't spent the years that people had spent with the projects, but you had to gain a perspective on the merits of the program. So, yeah, it's sort of something I enjoy doing. This is the job of an executive or, or a journalist, sort of bec becoming the instant expert, <laughs> which is kind of a joke, but, you know, not really. You have to distill the core concepts and understand the high-level concepts and what questions to ask uh, and leave it to the experts to do the work and, and defer to their judgment. And right. Know when to defer to their judgment and when to say, no, you need to plow through that. Right. Exactly. Yes. And um, so here I find myself at Schrodinger sort of farmer gal who's jumped over into a tech software company 
and there's a lot I don't fully understand. There's whiteboards here with physics equations written across them. It's going to take me a while, I think, uh, maybe many years to kind of be able to stand at the whiteboard with the team there. But um, the the question of, of um, you know, which targets are amenable to this technology um, across our partnered and, and, and um, uh, internal pipeline, I think, you know, those are the, those are the sort of um, pieces that I'm really enjoying here, which is, you know, figuring out the match between the technology and very exciting therapeutic hypotheses and, you know, spending the time digging deep and learning about them, but then also working with a network of experts to sort of figure out if we had a drug for this, would it actually make a difference? Would it matter? So chief biomedical scientist at a software company like Schrodinger, I mean, large part of the business, long history of selling software to pharmaceutical companies. Uh, but it's also becoming something of a drug developer of its own. Is that where more of your time and attention is going? Um, I would say yes. So there's the two pieces, which is um, at some point we were, we were working in a sort of um, reactive fashion. So people would come to us, academic leading lights would come to Schrodinger and say, I've got this really interesting target. Um, is this something that you can work on with me? Uh, first question is always, is there a structure? Um, and uh, so that, that has been uh, one of the ways in which we've worked with people on the, on the outside of, of, of Schrodinger. Um, there's pharma companies who have interesting projects that they would like to see move faster or where they're looking for new chemical matter. So there's that cohort of projects. But then as I've described, with the incredibly fast-growing number of structures that are being deposited for proteins, in the same way that in the 90s you had more and more genomic information becoming available, now we have CryoEM and we have... Um, the, the structures being deposited, I think that allows us to begin to really think about the marriage between structurally enabled targets, Schrodinger's physics-based methods, and where new therapeutic opportunities are. So, so I sort of divide my time between um, partnered programs, thinking about this sort of on a sort of high-level pocketone project. You know, what are the proteins that have potential for human uh, therapeutics that that match the technology? So it's a bit of technology development, uh, curation of targets, and also um, working on partnered programs as well. Do you see a certain class of targets as being more amenable to this computational approach, whereas others are still very much the domain of classic medicinal chemistry? Yeah, so um, I would say the domain of applicability, although that's, that term is used in a few different ways, but in terms of target class, um, I think we've worked on pretty much every target class. So GPCRs, kinases, um, the integrins are a great example, totally different uh, target class. So there's no real limits, actually, to the target classes. Of course, um, there's been a lot of kinase projects, so those seem a little bit more straightforward. Uh, there's obviously a lot of structural information for kinase targets. There are a couple of classes, like metallo um, enzymes, where... The, the technology doesn't necessarily allow one to predict uh, where there's a metal involved. And I'm probably not explaining that well enough because the chemists are here and the physicists would do a better job. But metalloproteins and metalloenzymes are more challenging. It's not something that we've been able to model effectively to date, but it's something we're working on. Um, so the, the interesting thing about um, working here is that we are juxtaposed with the developers, so the people who are figuring out what's the next frontier for this technology when it comes to modeling, not just selectivity and potency, which are the sort of mainstays of FEP and free energy perturbation, allowing you to look at affinity, um, other important drug-like properties, uh, as we've talked about, as things transition into phase one, historically, um, solubility, um, Add me properties, some of the things that trip compounds up, especially in the late preclinical space. Uh, the teams here are working on predictive models for a, a variety of these different properties. So um, it's actually a, a, a huge amount of fun working collaboratively with them. So you've got 
a pretty demanding, busy job. It takes a lot of brain power, brain energy, I think, during the day, but you still have something left over after that. Uh, You you are a mom. Yes, I Uh, have two children, uh, 10 and 14. And uh, so are are they showing some interest in science or what mom does? Uh, Yes, I I believe so. uh, they actually recently they've been calling me a nerd. <laughs> I guess it's because I work for a software company, but um, that they are interested in science and they're very interested in um, just generally what I do. I, I think I, I tend to talk about science a lot. Um, I guess that's just the household I grew up in, and I'm fascinated when I learn something new and I read a paper and I talk about it a lot at the dinner table. My husband's a physician, and so we tend to talk about um, breakthroughs in science, medicine, and technology a lot around the dinner table. So unfortunately for them, they're sort of immersed in it. <laughs> it's not just what you do in your day job. You'll you'll talk about you know, the latest images from space or other, other things that you hear about in science. Yeah, and actually we're both really interested in how technology is generally changing healthcare, not just in terms of drug discovery as a practicing physician. He's very interested in uh, some of what's happening at that end of the spectrum as well. So, yes, um, and just science in general. Um, I'm, I'm, as I, th- I think I was telling you, I'm, I'm very interested in the idea that um, just as kids have sports coaches, because science and technology, in my humble opinion, <laughs> is going to be so important to our lives, um, I think it's really great for kids to remain enthusiastic about this beyond their natural curiosity. Um, I was mentoring with the Prince of Wales Trust when I was an undergrad and a PhD student in the UK, and I had met um, 12-year-olds who had said to me, you're a scientist, really? They just first of all didn't recognize me as being your quintessential white hair, white coat kind of... (laughs) icon of science um but there may be a little cultural bias going on there (laughs) exactly uh but some of those 12 year olds had already said you know what i don't like science i thought to myself well how can that be at 12 years old to have already decided this so i got to be in my bonnet at that time that we need to expose kids to all of what it means to do science including um, messy lab work, uh, the whole sort of Sherlock Holmes of it all. I love Sherlock Holmes and just the notion that you're searching for answers. We need to keep them excited about that. So um, so that's something that I've continued to do actually all the way back from undergrad and uh, grad school days. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if every 12-year-old could feel that feeling of a discovery? <laughs> like learning something new. It's exhilarating. It is. Yes, and I've had uh, the the fortunate uh, few moments to spend with kids um, when I'm helping them understand uh, science in different domains, uh, to see that moment, like when they get excited, they've tested something and the color changed and, you know, wow, that's so cool. What else can I do? That's that's such a fantastic uh, thing to see in children. You actually do this in a in a pretty regular formal volunteer capacity, right? I mean, uh, coaching yes. kids? Yes, so um, some volunteering, um, that's right. So I actually am teaching at some of the local elementary schools. I go in and I talk about science. Um, I've pulled together a sort of summer camp of science coaches who actually uh, spend time teaching kids robotics, coding, biomed. We were teaching kids last summer about what is a diagnostic? Um, what would you do if Ebola broke out in your town? How do we stop that? You know, what is an antibody? How do you use them? And it was really interesting, actually. We had some parents even uh, where we were explaining what the role of insulin is in the body. Um, parents actually saying, goodness, I had no idea. <laughs> I tell my kids not to eat sweets. But yeah, you might no. want to cut your sugar intake a little bit so you hopefully don't ever take those DPP-4 inhibitors later in life. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But just in general, the public understanding of science and, and you know the efforts that people are going through to help cure disease or just explain how human biology works, I think um, bringing that to more people, I think, is really interesting. Do you ever collaborate with the Regeneron guys just down the road? You mentioned George Yonkopoulos earlier in the show, and this is a subject near and dear to his heart and, and Lunch Lifers, too. Not yet, but perhaps in the future. Um, I know Schrodinger has an extensive program across New York City, actually, in STEM, 
which uh, I am planning to get very involved in now that I'm here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Karen, it's been a great pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for joining me today on The Long Run. Thank you very much, Luke. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. Thanks to PPD Biotech for sponsoring. And thanks to you for listening. See you next episode.